the advice that I have for navigating the holidays is one, do something that your future self will thank you for. If you're hosting or someone else is hosting, you can ask them what foods are going to be available. That way you're not shocked when you come in and you see seven different pies on the counter or eight different types of potato dishes. Um, You know what to expect. And then make a list of foods that you're actually looking forward to. My family every year for like Christmas, there's the like the eight potato dishes. However, my mom only makes scalloped potatoes like once a year. I am not missing out on the opportunity for scalloped potatoes when I can make a baked potato or mashed potatoes any other day of the week. So make a list of what foods you would actually miss if you didn't have those on your plate. And going back to what your future self would thank you for, look up the carb counts beforehand. Welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman, and I invite you to join us as we talk candidly about the emotional challenges of living with type 1 diabetes. We'll give you actionable strategies to help you face these challenges head on, reduce your stress, and most importantly, live a full life without letting diabetes get in the way. Hey there, welcome to the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman. If you live with type 1 diabetes, you know food can be stressful. You're always thinking about how what you're eating is going to impact your blood sugar. You may restrict food, or you may not care at all and have your blood sugars go high. And we all know none of those are good options. You want to feel free and flexible in your life with type 1 diabetes, and being able to eat what you want is a big part of that. But food can also bring on feelings of guilt and shame. It can make you feel trapped, and no one with type 1 diabetes wants to feel trapped. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Amanda Siprich. Amanda has been living with type 1 diabetes for over 10 years, and now she's a registered dietitian who works with people with type 1 diabetes to help them manage their relationship with food. Amanda's going to give us some great tips about how to enjoy the foods we love while also managing our blood sugars and help us to feel more in control of both our food choices as well as our diabetes management. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Amanda. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I want to hear start by talking about you and your experience with type 1 diabetes. So can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself and your life with diabetes? Yeah. So my name is Amanda Siprich. I'm a registered dietitian who has been living with type 1 diabetes for the last 10 years. I was diagnosed when I was 18 years old, which was a very fragile age to receive a type one diagnosis. And it really changed um, multiple areas of my life. And I had went from a senior in high school, not really having a care in the world um, to now having a chronic condition that I had to now think about things that I didn't normally have to think about. And it really disrupted my relationship with food and the education that I had received straight off the bat um, from very, even the very first day of my diagnosis, 
I had a nurse come up to me um, and say something along the lines of uh, enjoy your last supper because tomorrow you you start insulin. Um, so there was always this stigma um, around um, what I was eating and my blood sugars and my diagnosis. And as I got into my diagnosis, I really thought everything that I was doing was for my health, but it was really being such a big burden on my health. And so many things within the type one diabetes community, you know, you're eating low carb, you're managing your blood sugars, you're hitting those A1C goals. It can be really disguised as health promoting, but we don't really take the time to look at what someone's relationship with food looks like. And no one took the time to ever ask me what that looked like. Wow. That's an incredibly sad story. Yeah. Uh, I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. You know, one thing I, I, the reason I always ask people to tell me their diagnosis story is because the messages that you get when you're diagnosed can have such a big impact on your life with diabetes. I was lucky that when I was diagnosed, I was given a message of hope and you can do anything you want to do. And the message that that nurse gave you, even though I'm sure she didn't mean it, um, mm -hmm. had a really incredible impact on you. And that has stayed with you negatively, but also hopefully positively, uh, you'd be able to make some career choices and some, some ways of how supporting the community through that lesson. Yeah, definitely. It was, it's always something that has been stuck kind of in the back of the, my mind, even like 10 years from now, I can still vividly remember, um, I was admitted into the hospital and by the time I was there, the cafeteria was closed. So they were like, go out on the street. It's like 11 o'clock at night, you know, get, um, my sister went out, not me, <laughs> um, but my sister went out. The only thing that was open at 10, 11 o'clock at night was a pizza place. So my sister got a pizza. I'm sitting. I didn't know the reputation pizza had at the time. I'm only like two hours into this diagnosis and I'm sitting on a hospital bed. My mom, my dad, my sister were all sitting there and, you know, the nurse reeled on in with, uh, to come and check my vitals. And that's when she said that. And I immediately lost my appetite. I was just like, so does this mean I can never have pizza ever again? And within just hours of my diagnosis, that almost like guilty conscience of second guessing, you know, should I be eating this? Should I not be eating this? Had already started. And the message is somehow insulin is incompatible with food. Mm -hmm. you have your last supper because you're starting insulin tomorrow. That just makes no sense. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's something that now being on the other side and now being a registered dietitian, going through a professional training and also with my personal experiences, I have seen throughout the layers of our medical system, um, how it has impacted me and the way that it's also broken um, from the dietitian perspective as well. So be quickly before we go on, I'm curious. Were you in high school at the time or were you in college or in between? I was, it was February of my senior year of high school. So I was okay. just about ready to go into college. And did you start college then that next fall? I did. Um, my diagnosis did change a lot of my plans. I was planning to go to school out of state. And then um, a lot of other things were kind of happening at the same time personally. So with a new diagnosis and all of that happening, uh, my family and I decided that it was the 
best interest for me to stay in state to go to school. Um, so I didn't really even know what I wanted to do. I always loved science, um, but I didn't know whether I wanted to do nursing or what. So I actually applied to school as just like a general bio major. Um, and the college that I ended up going to was one of the only schools in the state of New Jersey that offered a nutritional science dietetics option. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm learning about food and I'm learning about blood sugars. Like, this seems I can kind of, you know, take that all and like pair it all together. And uh, here we are now. <laughs> I could also imagine how difficult it must have been transitioning to college and food and college is, you know, a whole new world. If you're living in the dorms, you have a whole, you know, plethora of food that you can eat that you didn't have access to before and a lot of it all at once. Yeah. So a lot of it for me, um, I was so hyper-focused on controlling my blood sugars the best way that I could that I did a lot of restriction um, with my food. That is how I manipulated a lot of my blood sugars. Um, and it was because I was fearful. I was met with educators that always talk to me about these complications that I'm going to get if my blood sugar goes high. So if my blood sugar went over 200, I was almost in like a panic because I was like, oh my God, <laughs> um, what, what is going to happen? You know, I would always just spiral out of control thinking, you know, I'm going to go blind. My big toe is going to fall off, something like that. Um, and not realizing I never really learned the actual tools that I needed to be able to eat the foods that I still liked and to be a college kid and still enjoy pizza. I was told, you know, I have to manage my blood sugars, but it seemed like I had to give up one or the other. It's either I had to eat everything that I love and not manage my blood sugars or give up everything and manage my blood sugars. It seemed like there was no in-between option for me. And that's no way to live. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and how you got there. Yeah. So I have worked in a variety of settings since I became a dietitian. As um, I went through my, out my clinical experiences, I've had multiple loves. I love working with people in the hospital. I love, um, I worked in long-term care with uh, nursing home patients. Um, I worked in the community setting. I've been around the block a time or two since I became a dietitian, but something that has always been so near and dear to my heart has been the type one diabetes community. And um, I had a very unique opportunity this time last year to start my own business. I was laid off because of the pandemic. Um, and because of that opportunity, um, I started taking on my own clients and helping them achieve um, a helpful relationship with food. And that has been the missing puzzle piece that I have seen in my own diagnosis. And it has been something that in the diabetes clinics that I would um, have my clinical rotations at, I felt was missing as well from the traditional aspect of education that's received. Before we talk more about your work, I want to hear a little bit about what it takes to be trained as a dietitian and what that process is like. Yeah. So to, in order to become a registered dietitian, you have to obtain a bachelor's degree in nutritional science. 
you have to complete over 1,200 of supervised clinical practice hours and also pass a board examination. And um, I believe in 2024, it will then be mandatory for you to also have your master's degree as well. Um, I currently have my master's degree already in clinical dietetics, but um, it is a lot of work to become a registered dietitian, um, a lot of biochemistry, a lot of organic chemistry. Um, and I think a lot of times um, online, the term dietitian and nutritionist is sometimes used interchangeably, but there's a big difference between what a dietitian is and what a nutritionist is. And what is that difference? Um, so essentially, if you were to give me advice on what to eat, you can call yourself a nutritionist. The term nutritionist isn't regulated by any governing body. Um, a registered dietitian has to go through that whole accrediting process that I just discussed. Um, so a lot of times, um, a, I like to think of it as a, um, like the, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square type of thing. So a dietitian is a nutritionist, but a nutritionist isn't always a dietitian. Okay. And why would someone come and see you? What would they hope to achieve by coming and working with you? Yeah, so I support a lot of my clients um, with giving them tools and strategies to manage their blood sugars without giving up the foods that they love. So a lot of times we work on um, different types of foods, whether that's high fat meals, low fat meals, um, having them listen to their body when you become, when you are diagnosed with diabetes, you do lose a level of body trust. Um, you now have to think about things that you were never thinking about before. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times they have a really difficult time, um, associating their decisions between whether they're doing something for their blood sugar or for their health, or whether that's coming from an actual place of restriction. So we really dive deep on what their preferences and values and what they want their relationship to food really look like. Um, and a lot of times my clients will tell me that they learn more in a session or two with me than they have in like the 20 years that they have been diagnosed because it's someone who really gets what those missing puzzle pieces are in their diagnosis. One thing I see so much in my work are people who are just so unsteady on their feet with diabetes. They don't know how to eat, what to eat, how to deal with the foods that they want to eat and how to manage their blood sugars appropriately. Once they get those basics down, things change quickly. They feel so much more confident and so much more grounded and their anxiety tends to reduce quite a bit. And so the work that you're doing is really having a big impact on the mental health of people with diabetes in general. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to hear from you about some of the mental health challenges that you hear about because, you know, mental health challenges in food, especially around restriction and guilt and shame, they come up a lot. And I'm sure mm -hmm. you're seeing a different side of them than I see. So I'd love to hear from, you know, what are your, what are you seeing in your work and what are the biggest challenges that people are facing around mental health, food and diabetes? Yeah, the biggest thing that I hear is a lot of anxiety around carbs and around blood sugars. Um, I had a client call the other day and she was sitting down. Um, she was going to hibachi with her family. And even before she ordered, she was already thinking of, oh, my God, this rice is going to send my blood sugar up so high. 
And she was like, that was my automatic thought was my sugar's already going high and I haven't even chosen the thing on the menu yet. Um, so a lot of work that we do, um, is navigating those fear foods. So if it's something like rice, we take a lot of baby steps. We define what it is about rice that is causing that anxiety. Is it the amount of rice? Is it, um, can you maybe, maybe measure it or weigh it? So you feel a bit more comfortable with it. Are there foods that you feel comfortable eating around the rice? Can you try a smaller portion of rice? Can you try maybe mixing the rice with cauliflower rice to make you feel a bit more comfortable instead of just doing all cauliflower rice? There can we, you know, if your blood sugar always goes high after eating rice, you know, maybe is that just one food that your body absorbs more glucose from? Um, can we change that dosing strategy? There's so many things that we can go and discuss but sometimes we just see that black and white of, okay, well, this rice is going to raise my blood sugar. So it might as well just raise my blood sugar and I might as well just eat the rice and then the noodles and then this and then that. And then it becomes a almost like self-sabotage. And it's a very vicious, vicious cycle to be in. But then I find that it's so empowering to teach the clients that actually there are things that you can do. And the decisions that you make can really help them feel a bit more comfortable and confident as they go on their journey, knowing that they can actually make the decisions and it's not automatically made for them already. Yeah, I love, I love that you saying that. And it's the same thing with <laughs> diabetes, so my approach exactly. Mm-hmm. One thing that I also want to talk about is boundaries with food, because I think this is a big deal, both too rigid boundaries and, and, and boundaries that are too flexible. I always tell the story about myself that I've learned a long time ago um, that for me, eating high carb meals in the morning is not going to do well for my blood sugars and how I feel all day long. And so generally speaking, I avoid carbs before noon. Not to say mm-hmm. I never eat them, but I don't eat bagels. I don't eat French toast and pancakes as much as I, I would love to. Because and for me, that's a boundary issue. I, I say I want to set myself up for success. Um, but at the same time, when I'm on vacation, I allow myself to do that. So, you know, having that flexibility, I'm curious how you see those boundaries. So we don't want, I don't think we want to say eat whatever you want, whenever you want to, no matter what the consequences are, we want mm-hmm. to say, do what's right for you and your body and your quality of life at the same time and balance those things. Yeah. I find this to be the most difficult thing that I work with on my clients, because when we think about it. Our body's needs change day to day, meal to meal, situation to situation. And when you are looking in and listening to what your body needs, those needs can change and should be allowed to change. Um, And sometimes it feels like we're making that decision between our quality of life, you know, going out, having happy hour with our friends or choosing our diabetes management. And we're feeling like we're kind of constantly in a battle, but I always like my clients to open up and have a dialogue with themselves. So when they're going out for happy hour, um, if they go into happy hour and their blood sugar's 300, would it be best to have a spicy margarita? Probably not. Maybe you can order something else at that moment. 
the intention behind why we're doing things is so we feel good. And that intention is allowed to change meal to meal, experience to experience. And sometimes our diabetes takes priority and sometimes our life and enjoyment takes priority. It doesn't always have to be one or the other. It can rock back and forth and back and forth. Um, And a lot of times my clients are like, well, what would you do in this situation? And I'm like, well, I can't tell you because I'm not you. I don't know what your preferences are, what your body's needs were at that moment. I really want them to build that body trust and body confidence and confidence with their self-management to honor those needs. Then, you know, I could give everyone a piece of paper and say, here's a meal plan, go ahead and go and follow it. But what does that actually teach anyone? Not so much of anything. So on that note, I want to lead into the holidays because we just had Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. Christmas, mm-hmm. other winter holidays are coming up soon. How would you guide somebody who is concerned about food going into the holiday season? Yeah, I actually had done a class all about navigating the holidays because it is such a big one. Um, when I was first diagnosed, um, my mom had made me an Easter basket. It was the first holiday after my diagnosis. And my mom still makes me an Easter basket at 27 years old. Um, and (laughs) she's, she's pretty great. Now it's mostly cleaning supplies and stuff for like, you know, adults, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, I have an older sister And uh, my sister got an Easter basket that was full of Butterfingers and Reese's and jelly beans. And my Easter basket was full of sugar-free Russell Stouffer turtles. Yes. Yes. If everyone could see the face that you're making right now. I'm making a really disgusted (laughs) face right now. Um, So that I always thought that the holidays were a sugar-free pie and just it it changed the way I thought about the holidays. The holidays used to be a point where I looked forward to all the delicious foods on top of spending time with family and stuff. But it's really hard to dismiss that food is cultural and traditional and stuff like that. Um, so a lot of the advice that I have for navigating the holidays is one, do something that your future self will thank you for. So If you're hosting or someone else is hosting, you can ask them what foods are going to be available. That way you're not shocked when you come in and you see seven different pies on the counter or eight different types of potato dishes. Um, You know what to expect. And then make a list of foods that you're actually looking forward to. My family every year for like Christmas, there's the, like the eight potato dishes, there's mashed potatoes, there's potato salad, there's scallop potatoes, there's other cheesy, there's a lot of potatoes. However, my mom only makes scallop potatoes like once a year. I am not missing out on the opportunity for scallop potatoes when I can make a baked potato or mashed potatoes any other day of the week. I am going to prioritize the cheesy, delicious scallop potatoes because I know my mom's never going to slave in the kitchen, slicing up all those potatoes again for at least another year. So for me, prioritizing that, I would get so much more joy out of that potato than if I ate every single potato and piled that on my plate. So make a list of what foods you would actually miss if you didn't have those on your plate. 
And going back to what your future self would thank you for, look up the carb counts beforehand. So that way, when you, if you already know what foods are going to be there and you already know what the carb counts are for, there may be some last minute dishes that are sneaking onto the table. But for the most part, you are going in there already with a plan. And that should alleviate some of the uncertainty, some of the anxiety going into the meal. I'm now 10 years into things. I can, you know, wrestle around with all the different variables and they don't really face me. But if this is one of your first holidays with type one diabetes, there's no doubt that it's going to be overwhelming. So do something that your future self will thank you for and go into it a little prepared. I love that advice. Thanks so much, Amanda. (laughs) Where can people find out more about you? (laughs) So I am very big on Instagram. That's my biggest platform that I utilize. My handle is at t1d.nutritionist and my website at www.t1dnutritionist.com. Awesome. And I'll make sure I put all that information in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of Amanda and work with her, learn more about her, you can do it there. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This was an awesome a discussion, and I know it's going to be valuable to my listeners. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> that does it for this episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do me a favor. Share it with a friend who has type 1 diabetes. I want to make sure this podcast gets in the hands of everyone who could benefit from it. And you're my biggest advocate in making that happen. So send an email or text with a link to this episode to someone you know with type 1 diabetes so they can benefit from it as well. I always love hearing from my listeners. So please send me a DM on Instagram at the diabetes psychologist or send me an email to mark at the diabetespsychologist.com. Tell me how you're doing and what you want to hear more of on this podcast. And of course, be sure to tune in next Thursday for a brand new episode of the Diabetes Psychologist podcast. Remember, type 1 diabetes is not easy, but you can have an easier time with it. I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening. For more resources, you can visit www.thediabetespsychologist.com and be sure to sign up for the email list for access to exclusive content. I'm Dr. Mark Heyman, and tune in next time for the latest episode of the Diabetes Psychologist Podcast.